So yeah. let's begin with our names yep. and the title. and Gerald Klingbaugh and our ti overall title is... Recharge, Finding Your Safe Place and this title of this session is Restless Family Ties and this is for the recording. All right, but let's do the informal introduction, Chantel. Okay, how many of you were at the other, our first, our first seminar? All right. Okay, so, so quite some, a few. Some faithful. Uh, welcome okay, back. Welcome back and welcome to the others. We, we have funny accents. We hope you can manage with our funny accents. Um, I was so delighted. I just met one of my students from Peru that I haven't oh, seen for a long time. So it's nice to where we always kind of mix and mingle mm -hmm. and this cross connection. Chantal is from South Africa. I'm from Germany. We are both working at the General Conference right now. Um, Chantal is an associate director in the White Estate. If you have a question about Ellen White, she's the right person. And if you enjoy writing and reading, that's the person, that's my area. I'm the associate editor of Adventist Review and Adventist World magazines. All right. And away we go. We We're talking about restlessness. Let's begin with a prayer. That sounds like a perfect prayer. You begin. Please. I'll begin this time. Okay. Father, we thank you in a special way that the restlessness that we often feel and that affect our families, we can talk about this now and we can find solutions. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the time that we can spend together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Scripture's faith heroes didn't always have ideal relationships, in case you haven't noticed. Do, do you know that family? Yeah. So, I found out all sorts of exciting things about this family, and I really, really enjoy my work at the White Estate. And I said to Gerald, you better show me a time out here, because I have so many exciting stories I can tell you. But uh, one story that probably you haven't heard too much about, and that's uh, the White family itself, was not an ideal family, if you're looking for ideals. Uh, they had their marital tensions, James and Ellen. It wasn't always plain sailing for them. Which, which is normal, I think. Which is very normal mm -hmm. and actually very comforting because despite her being a prophet, she had to work through the same marital issues that we have to, her and James. It wasn't like she had a shortcut. Uh, same things. And is, when it comes to child rearing, you know, two of their children died. We, we have the oldest, Henry, who died at the age of 16. And then we had, we had the, the little John Herbert, who died at the age of 12 weeks. But the remaining two sons, Edson and Willie, were not always easy children, and particularly Edson. He, um, oof. yeah, he was a difficult child right from the beginning. He, he was, had kind of a devious personality. Um, you'd think you wouldn't try lying to your mother when she was a prophet, but hey, he did. And um, he grew up and he caused a lot of problems for his parents. I'm thinking of so many incidents. I mean, he marries young against his parents' wishes. They don't have anything against the girl, but they say, you're far too immature. Uh, you, you're just not ready for it. But he goes ahead Tell anyway. about the money business. Oh, yeah. For, he, he, first, he disliked being the child of Ellen and James White. But after a while, something went ting, and he thought, you know, this could maybe not be a bad thing. 
So he had a lot of business ideas. So he would go to a little town and, you know, the local Adventists that are there, he's like, I am Edson White, the son of James and Ellen. And everyone goes, whoa. And he says, and I have this great missionary outreach idea. Don't you want to contribute? And people, oh, yeah. And so he'd get the whatever together. He'd start something or another. It would invariably flop. And Edson would just skip town. So the local Adventists would write letters to Ellen and James saying, I want my $3 back. I want my $5 back. And James and Ellen were like, what do we do? So they were ending up, you know, sending this money to cover the embarrassment of of Edson. That doesn't sound like a perfect Adventist family. Oh, boy. And, yeah, (laughs) it's interesting parental styles, too. You wouldn't believe it, but Ellen is the, the softer of the two with the mother's heart. She's like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll cover for him this time, and we'll talk to him about it. James is like, well, they should take it up with the authorities. He can't keep doing this sort of thing. And so it causes stress amongst the two of them. This goes on for years. Okay, that's now the fast-forward section. All right, fast-forward. goes on for years. And um, when, by the time James dies in 1881, there's still a lot of friction between him and, 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 and Edson. But when, after James has died, he actually writes to his mum, who's then in Australia, and says, you know what? I've decided I'm not religiously inclined anymore. That's what he wrote. It's very touching, the letters that Ellen writes back. Ellen says to him, Edson, you don't want to do this. I've seen heaven. I'm not making this up. It's worth everything. You've got to be there. How can I think of heaven without my boys? She's just like heartbroken. Um, So it's very touching. Eventually... Eventually, it's beautiful to see how, it, how Ellen goes on pleading with him, how she goes on writing these, these letters. And how she doesn't cut off the relationship. She doesn't cut off the relationship. Mm-hmm. as hard. Oh, he gets into a very public fight with the church. He sues the Review and Herald Publishing Association. And that, of course, makes the newspapers. It's, yeah, it's messy. It's messy. But something happens to him. Eventually, something happens. He's 43 years old, and eventually, he accepts Jesus into his heart. Mm. And that's the part of story that you know from there. Because that's when he actually, you know, designs, helps fundraise for the Morning Star and takes off on the work in, on, on the Mississippi in the South. So just a little bit of background over there. No perfect families. So we'll talk a little bit about families today. And we think that no one is really an island. We all determined and influenced by the people that, you know, that we come from our parents, our siblings, our grandparents and all this. Mm-hmm. Some of the relationships you get to choose. You, 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 know, you see a nice young man or a nice young lady and you said, oh, I like her, I like him. You choose that. But some of the relationships we can't choose, like families. We, you, you can't choose your parents. <laughs> um, sometimes we wish, maybe as children, um, but we can't. Or parents, they can't choose or siblings. their children. Or, or siblings. You know, there's maybe warfare in there. Um, if you look at a congregation, I remember our shock that we felt when we came to the United States. We were, you know, had worked in different parts of the world. And 
There was one church where we worked. Mostly it's a university church. It's a big church. And there was no church shopping. Have you ever heard this? <laughs> but when we moved to the D.C. area where the General Conference is located, around there I would say about 50 churches. You can choose whatever you like. Language, ethnicity, uh, that's worship style, uh, <laughs> size, and so on. Yeah. So you can't really choose that well, usually. Yeah, normally you can't choose your church congregation. Some places you're lucky enough to be able to do that. Now, we serve a perfect God, and it would be wonderful if we could reflect that perfection in our family and our family relationships. But the truth is that as long as we're in a sinful world, this will, there will not be perfection. We, um, some of us have had perfect or perfectly loving, perfectly warm uh, nurturing families, some of us haven't, and we've had to settle for less. It's so, these relationships can be complicated, and maybe right now you find yourself in a complicated relationship. I don't know. Mm -hmm. They can be sometimes painful, even with the people that are closest to us. Um, in case of a church family, we can say, well, I'm just going to a different church, or I stop going to church, and that's unfortunately a trend we see in young adults like you. Um, who, if you, do you get hurt in church. You get hurt somewhere and you move away. Mm -hmm. Or we move away. That's, mm -hmm. that's not just young adults. No, but are. the matter, the, the, you know, the core is really we need each other. We talked about this loneliness and that we need this connection with other people and with family in our faith journey. And that's mm -hmm. what we're really concerned about. Of course, this is one of the biggest causes of restlessness. Mm -hmm is stressful family relationships or relationships with people. That breeds the biggest amount of restlessness. It leaves us carrying hurt. And it's extremely important that, and I know it's not comfortable, but it is very important to dig around and to find out what's causing the hurt, where is it coming from, and to do something about it. Because if we don't, if we don't, we will offload that hurt on others. Mm. Now, we will repeat it. Now, God has very high ideals, I think, for families, for marriages, for relationships. And at the same time, I think we also invited not to be unrealistic because we have to deal with the real, not the ideal, because we live in a sinful world. We are sinners ourselves. We must accept and work with the real, not the ideal, we must be ready to let down the pretenses that we are actually perfect. We are not. At least I, I'm not. That we protect ourselves with the facades that we put mm -hmm. on, especially in church. We, and that means you make yourself vulnerable. Now let's talk that's about not easy. vulnerability. Well, for those of you who weren't in the first seminar, um, we, I hope you're not too comfortable because at this moment in time, it's your turn. We're going to put out a question, and we invite you to discuss that question with the people around you, and we'll be getting some feedback. So some of the groups I see are kind of still intact. Some are new. So just reabsorb into a couple of people around you. And here we have a question for you. Okay, the question is, in your groups, and we'll give you one or two minutes for that, why do you think that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all listed as faith hearers in chapter 11 of Hebrews. 
considering their messy family relationships. I repeat this question. Why do you think that Abram, Isaac, and Jacob are all listed, listed as, as faith heroes in Hebrews 11, considering their messy family relationships? Okay, talk to one another, make friends, get to know somebody, and we'll come back and check in in about one or two minutes. Okay, looking at our time, it's wonderful to see you engaging with one another. That's part of the joy of something like what we're doing here. Um, any ideas, any volunteers who say, why do you think God kept these people in there considering they didn't come really from perfect families? Any ideas? And remember, there's no wrong answer. This group is much shyer than the first one, Chantal. No, they're just warming up. They're, they're just, just warming, warming up. up. Okay. Yes. Oh, good. Did you hear what he said? He said, so that we, or whoever reads these texts, could relate to them better or more. Yeah. Any, any other idea? Why didn't God choose somebody else? Jacob, the, the encounter. Yeah. Yes. Let me, let me summarize it, because otherwise there's a big, big silence on the, on the tape. I, I think what he says is, we see those that there was growth, but it's always towards the end of their life that they have this moment of, or this find of, finally reach that moment or place of faith. And then, you know, we're thinking of Isaac and the sacrifice on Mount Mor Moriah and Jacob and the encounter with the angel. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, and they were consistent in, throughout their lives in, in the practice. I saw another hand there. Yes. Okay. Thank you. They trusted God, regardless of the situation. Sometimes the situations were very good, and sometimes it was very pessimistic. I mean, the outlook was not very good. Okay, good. Chantal. Yeah, I think it's important to remember when we look at the faith heroes and we look at all of our relationships, it's important to remember that our relationships are really little miniatures of the great controversy. Because there's a great controversy going on, and it's not just out there, uh, you know, the, the Church of Christ, and it's personal as well. And Satan attacks us where it's, it hurts the most. Mm. That's and that family. will be in the relationships that mean the most. So often when we have a problem with someone, often it's not that someone, but it's the one who's behind the someone that's the real problem. Mm. So we, if we remember that, I think it helps see things in perspective. There's the great controversy playing out in our most intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. And we will see that coming out. Now sometimes our relationships, uh, the problems that we have, are rooted in our own poor choices. Mm. Got to admit it. We make the wrong choices. Sometimes they're out of our control. They're out of our control. But either way, but either way, it's comforting to note these, these faith heroes in the Bible. As someone said, it definitely gives us that hope, that hope. And we're going to specialize, I think, or really focus. home in, focus on a really, I think, one, a, a real Bible hero, 
at least when it comes to dysfunctional families. All right, we would like to spend, I think, the rest of this seminar on mm -hmm. Joseph. The story of Joseph, I think, is a story that mm -hmm. actually takes a lot of space in the Bible. That's very, very unique because there are many stories connected to it. But Joseph, the background. Joseph really yeah. knew about dysfunctional families, right? You know, grandparents, father, mother, the, the rivalry between his brothers and him, coming from different mothers. You know, there were actually not just one wife. There were two wives plus two maids in the household. It was a mess. I think it, it, it didn't sound good. So he knew what it means to come from a complex family relationship. At the same time, um, remember the story when Sarah, when in his grandfather's mm -hmm. uh, family, when Sarah was barren and she couldn't conceive that, you know, Sarah said, well, let's follow the customs of the land. You get my, my mate and the child is mine. That, that was the custom of the land, but it introduced conflict. Mm -hmm. There was never again somehow this harmony in the household of, of Abraham. Yeah, of course, we had Ishmael and Isaac that grow up and the tensions that, that, that they are between them. And now, that's important to note, Isaac grows up in this environment, and yet, when he becomes a father, that's why I say, if we don't identify what's going on, we often repeat. He makes his favorite, Esau, and he dotes on Esau, and poor, uh, poor Jacob spends his entire life trying to get his father's approval. That's the, the big deal, and his father's blessing, of course, with that. So trying to earn that, this dysfunctionality that, that and, goes and, on. And, and Jacob then tricks. Mm -hmm. You know, he reverts to, let me solve that problem, because I want to have that blessing. Mm -hmm. And then we have the other situation. He doesn't choose two wives. Remember? He's tricked into two wives, and things escalate from two there. Sisters. Those two sisters, their maids, they can't stand each other, and they start a childbearing race and elicit everything. It's a ferocious race, playing with people's lives and people's hearts mm. and people's self-esteem mm. and people's love. They are both desperate to get his love. To, to, to get Jacob's love. Now imagine that rivalry between the, the women or the two women then, and then we suddenly f f look at the story and we recognize that this must have spilled over into their own relationships. We don't know the exact dates when it happened, but as young adults, Yo Joseph's older brothers had already massacred all males of a town called Shechem. Do you remember that story? They weren't the, old. They, because their the sister genealogy. had been abused. No. Obviously, that wasn't good, but that was the family that Joseph grew up with. His oldest brother, Reuben, had really, had really stepped out and he had slept with Bilcha. Bilcha was one of the maids and she was such considered as a concubine of the father. Really, he's saying, I'm as big as you are. I am important. I'm going to take over control of this household. Um, and then Judah, another brother, mistook his widowed daughter-in-law for a prostitute and ended up having twins with her. That's, by the way, Genesis chapter 38. It's not just stories that I tell you. You read those chapters and you say, oh, wow, 
And I doubt with I any of those. I thought that my family was complex. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, maybe. Yeah. I don't know what you experience. Yeah. But it's a very, very difficult relationship that we have there. Uh, it's interesting. We don't normally tell those stories as children's stories at church now, do we? Because uh, for, it is so, good, it, good it's so messy. <laughs> it's so incredibly messy. Now, Joseph, who comes out of, you know, part of this m messy situation, he adds fuel to the fire, of course, with his own children. Um, Jacob. And he's specifically, sorry, Jacob. Mm -hmm. Did I say Joseph? Yes. No, yes. sorry. Jacob, by favoring Joseph in front of the others. I mean, that expensive coat really, you know, was, was really a slap in the face of the others who are desperate for his love and, and for, for his recognition. So now Joseph finds himself in that, in that pit, a dry pit. He's sold as a slave. His brother have a great plan to make some money and also tell his father that he must have died. And he takes all these relationships, all these memories with him to Egypt. Imagine that. There's no res you know, resolved issues. There's no conversations that haven't, no you know, repentance or, or you know, some, some way of bringing a family together. He takes that all to Egypt mm -hmm. as he sits, I don't know, if he sat on a camel or if he walking as a slave, maybe they wanted to protect his value. He was sitting on the camel and then he's sold as a slave. Mm -hmm. Now, we have some cultures that emphasize community over individual, mm. others that em emphasize, the more Western cultures, individual over community. But, um, re you know, and, and if we look at Scripture, we actually find a balance between, between these two. And we spoke a lot about community in our, in our first seminar. But regardless, individual or community, the big picture for healing relationships dysfunctional relationships. Step one is always a personal connection with God. Mm. And this is something that happens to Joseph on the way to Egypt. Mm. And it's beautiful, the description that, that Ellen White gives of, 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 of Joseph that actually moment. seeing the, the hills where he knew his father's tent was and he couldn't get there as a slave on his way to Egypt, and he just cries and cries and cries. And for a moment, he just sort of gives up. And then he says, no, I'm not giving up. I'm giving myself to God. So, so he makes a conscious decision, and yet his situation is, hasn't improved. He's mm -hmm. sold on the market. He's bought by Potiphar. He makes a good impression. He's, he kind of rises in the household he sees, Potiphar sees that Joseph seems to be blessed by God. Um, he has suddenly, there's a 17-year-old that is sudden, I don't know how many of you are 17 here. There's a couple of you here. A 17-year-old, you know, shoved into a new culture, into a new language, and suddenly he's not the beloved boy, you know, the favorite of the father. He's a slave. Now, our, our families, our close relationships are absolutely pivotal in forming our, our self-esteem mm. and our concept of our own value. Mm -hmm. And um, Joseph, as you said, he's grown up believing he was something special, but, uh, but now, now who is he? Mm. He's just simply a slave. 
I think it's important, and it's, I'll read the sentence because I think I don't want to mix it up because I think it's a really, really important uh, point. If we are dependent on others to tell us what we're worth, mm. then we will be in for a rough ride and we'll be horribly confused. This confusion will, uh, will lead to pain and havoc in our relationships. We need to find our self-worth in not what others think of us, but what God thinks of us. Mm. How God sees us and not the roles that we currently have. Mm. Because the roles we currently have will change. My roles have changed so much over my life, and they still will be changing. I mean, how much worth will an old woman have that I will become? Uh, we've got to find ourselves. You're worthless, my. I mean, <laughs> no. You're priceless, my wife. Oh, boy. We need to cut this out. Make sure. So it, it's so essential that we are not dependent on what others are thinking of us and not trying to judge our self-worth off this mm. because it is just so fluid. Those likes, they are not enough to build value. Amen. Well, as Joseph is getting along and he's, I think, imp- you know, he's getting a new status in the household, we know the story, it, somehow the decision that he made affects what he's doing and God blesses him, mm-hmm. and yet his life is not becoming smooth and, you know, tranquil and trouble-free and, you know, restful. Someone in his home where he lives now is restless. Yeah, Mrs. Potiphar is very restless, and uh, she has a problem with, with Joseph. And I think her problem is what many of us will confront and hopefully we won't be doing the same. Now, I'm not speaking of sexual temptation necessarily. Mm. I'm thinking of seeing people as objects Mm. to manipulate and not as people created in the image of God. As soon as we see people as objects, we're in for trouble. And Mrs. Potiphar sees Joseph, of course, as a sex object, Mm. and she's after him with everything that, that she's got. It's interesting that the Bible mentions very few times the physical traits of one of these protagonists of the Bible. We know that Saul was tall, um, that Joseph looked handsome. Mm-hmm. That's what is described in, in Genesis. But really, that's not the angle that God takes. Remember what Samuel is told when he looks at the sons of David? Uh, Jesse. Uh, Jesse, you know, and there's David and there's these other sons that must have looked much more impressive, maybe more experienced and older. He says, no, no, no. Man, God does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, Mm -hmm. but the Lord looks at the heart. So the statement that Joseph is handsome is a hint for us, for the reader to say, well, this is not really according to what God values, but it points us to to, to Mrs. Potiphar's, we don't know her name, by the way, Mrs. Potiphar's um, insistence on, on looking at Joseph in a way, as you said, as an object. So Joseph does something that's, that's counterproductive. And I know you've heard sermons on this, and there's a lot to explore, but Joseph does something counterproductive. He refuses to see Mrs. Potiphar as an object. Mm. 
He doesn't see her as a way to get fame and fortune. <laughs> well, wouldn't get fame, but he sure would get fortune. And, and, and there was a lot of good deals that were in it for him uh, if, if, he, if he actually formed a liaison with her. But he doesn't. Mm. He says, I cannot do this because mm -hmm. I apply biblical principles to my relationships. Mm. This is what Joseph is doing. He is applying biblical principles to his relationships. And biblical principles are not old-fashioned. Mm. They stand the test of time. If all of us collectively were applying biblical principles to our relationships, we would have perfect relationships. We would. But unfortunately, we're not all applying them. Now, in his case, he applies a biblical principle. He refuses. And... Because he refuses, he, he suffers. That's, now, that doesn't make sense. We like the Horace, uh, Hollywood you know, storyline that you know, he was faithful and you know, the music the comes thing. out and you know, he, he comes out as a winner. But he doesn't. Not in this instant. Not in this in instant. Because he also realizes that he cannot control the choice that others make, including Mrs. Potiphar's choice. Mm -hmm. But he has decided to to live and to love and to treat others the way that God treats him mm -hmm. and us, all of us. Mm -hmm. He wants to honor God, and that's why he really runs away half-naked instead of hanging around. Mm -hmm. So take away here, when we apply biblical principles to our relationships, we don't always get the happy ending. Okay. Because others have a choice as well. Mm -hmm. But we choose to do this. We choose not to slide to the level that others choose to slide to and fight fire with fire. Okay, Chantel, I think we're preaching too much. I see some yeah. heads nodding here. Yeah. So okay. we'll, we'll put up a question here that we would love you to consider in your groups, and maybe that helps you to, to stay engaged. Here's the question. How can we find rest when those closest to us seem set on making our lives miserable? Have you ever felt that way? Friends, family members, church, wherever context you, you consider. I'll read the question again. How can we find rest when those closest to us seem set on making our lives miserable? All right, we'll give you two minutes. Talk to your the newly made friends around you. And then we'll get a little bit of feedback and we'll move on. We have a couple of questions now still. Why don't you go on? All right, we've just solved all our relationship problems. Great, good news. You did, right? <laughs> okay, maybe. Wow, I see some hope here. Okay, what, what do we have? What do we have? How do we find rest when those closest to us seem intent on making life miserable? Yes. Ah, I like that. Boundaries, she says. We have to set, set boundaries. boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, okay, so your definition of rest may be different to theirs. Good. Okay, he says most, mostly it's not a personal thing. 
Okay. And okay. so you're saying Very to try to find the motivation behind why they treat you as they're treating Very, you. Very try to find causes. Very redemptive. If they're very closed off, you may need to step away and set boundaries. Okay, there's yes. a hand. In the okay. Sometimes it, it's just not possible because we can't control their choices, right? And, and if that's maybe what Joseph you experienced with mm -hmm. Mrs. Potiphar. Yes. Okay. So, not necessarily the God puts us in that situation, but he allows that, and maybe it's part of a training ground where we exercise and maybe strengthen also our, our own relationships. Mm -hmm. All right, being vulnerable. That's, that's a, a hard one, and a it's a painful one. one. Mm. Because those are normally people that know how to hurt you best, too. Chantal, how, how did we respond to that? How, how do we you know, find this mm -hmm. rest when other people want to make our lives miserable? Well, as we said earlier, and I think you've mentioned here, great controversy. We keep remembering there's something more to this fight than just the two of us or our dynamics. There is the great controversy in miniature playing out before us. And I think we call that the big picture. I think mm -hmm. we need to keep in mind the big picture that, that surrounds us, that we're part of, not just pawns, but we, we act as in that controversy as well, um, but we are not, thankfully, I'm so grateful for that, we're not left to fight these battles alone. Wouldn't you say amen to that? God's word sets out the principle for healthy relationships, and then there is this one text that always is my go-to text in the New Testament, James 1 verse 5, if you, any of you lack wisdom, and I include here also the wisdom to deal with difficult, complex, maybe sometimes even dysfunctional relationships, ask and that wisdom will be, mm -hmm. will be given. Mm -hmm. I think it, it extends also to these relationships. Okay, and I would like to say and put it right out here that practicing biblical principles in our relationships does not include tolerance of any form of abuse. Mm. And I say that again, it doesn't include tolerance of any form of abuse. Sexual, emotional, physical abuse is not part of a relationship that can be redeemed. Especially by the victim just tolerating it because they somehow feel this is God's will for them and they have to stay stuck in that environment. It is not. Remember that you are bought with a price. You have value. Okay, so that's, that being said, I want to make it clear because if there is anybody here who is in a relationship right now where they are suffering abuse, please speak to someone, get professional help. This is not just a private personal issue. Salvation issues are at stake. Mm. So just a real plea. You notice that Chantal is very passionate about that. I am. And, and I think that we should be about that mm -hmm. because it's not something that we can put under a Christian veneer. veneer or facade and say, well, you know, you have to handle it. You have to maybe, and I 
don't want to put words into your mouth. We have to live through this experience because God wants to train us to do something better. He does that. I, I agree with you. But there are moments where we have to say no. We have to step away. Now, let me ask you, shall we go to the next question, Chantal? Yes. Yeah? This would be, I think this is worth exploring because we are touching on, on these principles. Okay. Yes. Here's the next one. We have, fast forward quickly, Joseph, you know, he gets, he interprets the dream in prison. Um, he is eventually elevated. elevated. It's a long process. He's elevated. He's ruler of, of Egypt, you know, second in second. command. Brothers turn up. And then there's a lot of, a long story of how he kind of tricks his brothers and, and keeps, you know, cross-questioning them and all, all that kind of thing. Mm. So my question is, why the elaborate plot? You remember how he, they, he first gets them to bring Benjamin and then he hides the, the, the cup in Benjamin's bag and all this business. Why the elaborate plot? In your groups, quickly, what is Joseph trying to do? And you can read there if you want to, Genesis chapter 42, 7 to 14. Yeah, if you've never read that story before, it's an intriguing story. Okay. All right. Let's get together again. Any ideas? Any, you, you notice we asked why question. Why questions do not have normally a very clear answer. There's, there's a broad space. Why do you think this elaborate plot in the story? Why does he do it like this? Any idea? Any suggestion? Yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's important to, to figure out those boundaries, and maybe that was his way of finding out. Are they still kind of in their old, old thought patterns and their old behavioral patterns, or have they changed? Very good. Any, any other idea why, why this elaborate plot? Yes, please. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I see, she said, I see a, a close proximity or a similarity to, to God's justice, and God's justice always involves investigation. It always, there's a close look at, you know, if it's, you know, what's right and what's wrong. Yeah. One other thing is that the entire process, although it may seem slow at first, it was always the intent of the story in derivation. Okay, thank you. This... This entire process, although it, you know, if you look at it and you think, man, that's complicated and maybe cruel even if he, you know, when he sends the soldiers after them and he brings them back and shames them publicly, it was really a way to introduce um, reconciliation. Okay. Yeah, I think you have summarized things really, really well. He had to find out now as he was in a good place, mm. his first thought was for his family, mm -hmm. particularly his younger brother, had his younger brother now become a victim mm -hmm. and taken his place, seeing that he was gone and they were all picking on Benjamin now? What about his father? Had, had they turned on his father already? 
So these were things that he had to find out. As someone said, what, what were the boundaries? Where were they at? Had they grown or learnt anything in their experience before he actually reveals himself? I, I think that is very unique in that story because it connects us to his care for his entire family, and especially for the most vulnerable. He was now in a position to take care of them. He had power. He had a power that would really also overwhelm his older brothers, where, you know, remember, seniority, hierarchy is very important in biblical, in, in, that cult, in those cultures. Age is very mm -hmm. important. So we see him moving from victim to protector. Yes. And, and that's an important first step over here. All right. Why don't we ask another question? Yeah, and, and this and that is one, a tough I'm one. I'm interested to hear what you think about that. <laughs> I shouldn't have really. scared them. Hey? Okay. Okay. So we want to hear what's your personal definition or in your group of forgiveness. And maybe to start the, you know, the, the brain cells working. And second question, how does forgiveness play out in the life of Joseph? If you want to talk about the story, but really we want to hear the bigger definition of what do you think is forgiveness? Okay? What does it mean to forgive? All right, we have two minutes and then we are on the final leg. Okay, I'm, I'm eager to hear your definition. How would you define forgiveness? Anybody? Short definition, how would you define forgiveness? Yes. yes. Okay. When how you treat them is not based on what they did to you in the past. Or that, how they treated you in the past. That is uh -huh. forgiveness. Okay. okay. Good. Th thank you. Here. Okay. So, so the, the difference between forgiveness, I can forgive someone, but that doesn't mean that I will automatically trust them or have the same trust level as I had before, they may have to, that person or individual may have to earn that trust again. All right. Okay. Good. <laughs> okay, that's, that's very good definition at the end. So if, for repeating for the audio verse, it's forgiveness is something we do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's not forgiving is drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's not going to happen, mm -hmm. but it's doing that work for yourself that you can get to the point where you don't actually want to just punch that person when you see them. Okay. Here, here's a definition that we liked when we thought about this and prepared this. Forgiven, forgiveness has been defined as the willingness to abandon one's right to resentment, condemnation, and revenge toward an offender or a group who acted unjustly. Our willingness to abandon that. I mean, I have the right to be angry, to be hurt, maybe even to be resentful, but I take choose. choose not to. Let me read you a quote by Dr. Marilyn Armour. She's a family therapist who worked closely, and I'm, you know, as a German, I'm always intriguing, intrigued by this, worked closely with Holocaust survivors, people that 
survived Auschwitz or some of the other concentration camps. And she noticed a clear difference. Some people, they survived physically, but they mentally, they, sh they, sh they shriveled up. And they died very soon afterwards. Other people thrived, and she wanted to know, to know why. She's, she writes, the whole idea of forgiveness is an intentional act by the victim. And that's maybe what, what you said. It's not something that just happens. It's something that I choose to do. Wow. Now, of course, as we've said before, forgiveness doesn't mean an absence of consequences. Mm -hmm. So you can forgive someone and still take them to court. So it doesn't mean that there aren't you, any consequences for your behavior. You've been in the United States too, too long. long. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean letting someone continue abusive patterns. Mm. That isn't forgiveness. You're actually doing them a disfavor by letting them continue in that pattern. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is really re with the moment when we turn our resentment and our desire for revenge over to God where we take those feelings of, I want revenge, I want justice, mm -hmm. and we say, God, you are just, you do it, I can't, I give it to you. I, I, I like, in the story of Joseph, we see him crying at that moment. Do you, do you remember that in the story? He's, he, they, he sends out everyone, he starts crying, it's pouring out, and I imagine that when he sees, when he encounters his brothers, he's kind of reliving again some of these emotions and feelings of the past. But he also remembers how God forgave him and how God forgives us who don't deserve forgiveness. Now, that's, that's the key part. Here. We don't deserve forgiveness. As Joseph listens to his brothers and as he sees their terror, he knows that if he were in their shoes he would also be desperately in need of forgiveness. And I think that's why he extends to his brothers and finally says, it's me. Mm. On, on a practical level, and the Bible is an intensely practical book too. Mm. As Christians, we know we need to forgive. Mm. But it's not an easy process, mm. especially when the hurt is deep. Mm. And that's what I like about Joseph's story is that emotion that he expresses. Part of the process of forgiveness is also voicing your hurt mm -hmm. and your resentment. And in case you think that's inappropriate, read the Psalms. Mm. It's full of the psalmist, sometimes David, sometimes others, calling out to God and shouting, it's not fair. I've I'm hurt. Enough. I'm angry. Won't you cause you know, fire to come down from heaven? Swallow them up do all sorts of things to them because I am so mad because they've hurt me so deeply. It's okay to tell God how we feel. And that's a first step towards healing. But then we say, I give it to you. I give it to you. And uh, I must say, sometimes you'll have, to give it, you'll have to give it to God. We have to give it to God more than once. We right? do. I think it has to happen daily in, in many cases. Mm -hmm. when, especially the moments when this comes up again. Now, in the story of Joseph, you remember that the brothers were worried when the father died. They were all now in Egypt. You know, it sounded like mm -hmm. the happy end of, of a very dark story. And the father dies, and suddenly they're afraid, and he calls them in. And let me read you this text. I think I 
I have that text here. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Forgiveness is something that God uses to actually not just transform and bless us, but it actually transforms and blesses people around us, mm -hmm. our relationships. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, it's a good, for me, it's a good thought and a good thing to remember. God doesn't send hurt into us and into our lives deliberately mm. by relationships with other people. God doesn't send you someone to hurt you. That's not God's doing. That's Satan's doing. But God can override those hurts and turn them into blessings mm. when we give them to God and find the ability to forgive through God. As for Joseph, I'm, I know God would have saved the family some other way, but he overrode on that particular story and saved the whole family from dying out mm. in, in, the, in that drought. And not just the family, but he Egypt saved all of Egypt. And all peoples that, mm -hmm. that came to, to Egypt, all clans and families and tribes. Here's one question we want to leave you with. Um, it's a reflection again. Think about God's promise in James 1.5 and take a moment to pray for wisdom in your relationships. Be open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as you relate to people around you. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to end with a word of prayer. I think time is short. And after that, we'll do our last advertising for this afternoon. Thank you very much for, for joining us and for sharing the journey with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you in a special way for the story of Joseph. We realize that it's also often our story of hurt, of tension, of greed, of very difficult relationships within our families, with our marriages, in our churches. And we ask right now that your healing touch will, will reach our hearts. We ask for that wisdom that you promised to to give to every, anyone who, who asks for it. Give us that wisdom. Give us the ability to forgive. Give us the ability to reach out and to also set these boundaries that will be important. But above all, give us the ability to ask for your forgiveness and your transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. This message was recorded in partnership with Audioverse at the GYC conference Break Forth in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take sacrificial initiative for Christ and to see Jesus finish the work in this generation. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.